Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Tidelift Upstream podcast. This is our first one in a very long time, and I'm really excited about our guest today. This podcast is going to be about the edges of open, the ideas, the people, the projects that we're all going to be working with, we're all going to be building on in years to come. And I wanted to really restart it uh, this, this year in 2023, after a couple of years off, by bringing in two people who have been thinking about where open is now, right? Not just in its traditional realm, core realm of software, but in some new areas and new experiments. And to talk about how those experiments uh, are both exciting and maybe a little, uh, maybe not quite going necessarily the way we thought they might have if you'd asked us 10 or 20 years ago when we were talking about open. We'll start first with uh, Molly White, who is, uh, I guess, is it fair to say to these days, Molly, that your most famous for Web3 is going great? Is that? Uh... Yeah, I suppose so. I guess it depends who you ask, but yes. Fair enough. So I've known Molly for a long time. Molly was a, still is, a longtime volunteer at Wikipedia and a software developer who, um, uh, who is... Uh, has be you developed a sideline and then it grew into more than a sideline of saying, Hey, this Web3 stuff that everybody's talking about is pretty cool, but maybe not quite as, uh, you know, has, has gone off the rails, right? And um, so I want to talk about that quite a bit. And then I think, but also I want to talk, uh, our, our other guest today is Steph Mafuli of the Open Source Initiative. And I would say, so do you think it's fair that the open source initiative has been sort of conservative at times? Uh, oh, uh, you want to go there immediately? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think you're right. I say that with love, but one of the things that open source initiative has done recently, and that's going to be hopefully in our conversation today, a interesting contrast with the Web3 stuff that Molly's been doing is some what you've called a deep dive into AI, trying to understand what machine learning and data means for the world and and specifically for open. And yeah. I think that's, I've obviously been very interested in that and I'm really curious to hear how these two uh, play together. Molly, I wanna start with you. I've seen a lot of people online call you a cynic or a critic or a hater comes out a lot. Uh, and But yet, since I know you from the Wikipedia context, like I think of you as a fundamentally pretty optimistic person, right? Somebody, I mean, I think you have to be an optimist at some level to be a, a good Wikipedian, right? Because we were all doing something that nobody thought actually would work. Um, so I'm curious for you, how did that, did you come into the distributed web three kind of stuff as an optimist or were you sort of pretty critical about it from day one in your interactions with it? I definitely, I mean, I came into it with an open mind. Um, you know, my, my original thought when I started to pay attention to it was, you know, I was seeing this word web three everywhere. And, you know, I knew that people sort of broadly thought of today's internet as web two. And so when I heard web three, I was like, oh, cool. You know, where are we going next? You know, uh, and, you know, I love the web. I love, uh, you know, a lot of the, the projects that are created on the web. And so when I heard, you know, there was going to be new and exciting technology to move the web forward, I was like, great, where do I sign up? Um, but then, you know, when I started reading about it and actually learning what the technology was and how it was performing in, in reality, that's when my views changed a little bit and I started to become more of a skeptic. Um, and people, you know, people do call me a skeptic or a critic, which, you know, I don't actually think of those as negative or, or pessimistic viewpoints. I think they're, they can be very optimistic. You know, I, I want the web to move in a better direction. And that's why I, you know, care so much about things like Web3, which I think are sort of pointing in the wrong direction. Well, what, what would have been, I mean, I know, for example, you know, some people thought of Web3 as... I mean, I think it's inarguable web web two or whatever you want to call it, the current web 
has become pretty centralized, right? We have a handful of giants, a handful of advertising networks, and certainly a lot of the early Web3 folks where it resonated with open was this idea that it was going to decentralize. It was going to shift power in the industry. Uh, was that part of what you were interested in, in sort of in this potential future? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was a lot of the goals that I was seeing people in this so-called Web3 movement talking about were very aligned with my own, you know, around reducing the power that, you know, a small handful of groups have in the Internet. That's a very compelling goal, in my opinion. The problem that I was running into is that it didn't seem like they were actually moving in that direction. They were just sort of centralizing power among new players um, or even sometimes the same players as in today's web, you know, we're trying to get their their foothold in Web3. Um, so, you know, again, like I think the goals make a lot of sense, but I think maybe the the path to getting there that is proposed by a lot of the Web3 proponents maybe doesn't. Um, you know, I, I think the decentralized web movement is very separate from the Web3 movement, although there have sort of been attempts to redefine Web3 to capture decentralized web under its umbrella. Um, but the decentralized web movement is is hardly as new as this whole Web3, uh, you know, push in the past handful of years. Yeah, I mean, the D-Web folks, as as some as they sometimes call themselves, have been around for a while, uh, and I, 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 I sometimes feel a little bad for them. It almost feels like their movement got hijacked, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's very true. Like people talk about decentralized web, and, and it's like, oh, blockchains. They're like, no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, well, you've, I mean, you've jumped onto. I guess all three of us uh, have jumped onto uh, Mastodon or Fediverse or whatever we want to call it this week. So that's a that's actually been a really good reminder in the past few months that there's more to distributed web than just uh than just blockchain, right? Right. And there actually aren't that many crypto people there. I've found the web3 movement <laughs> over on Mastodon is fairly uh minimal. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I for obvious reasons I haven't looked for them there. Um oh, that so what do you think do you think that's just do you think that's a gap between the stated values of the Web3 folks and like where their heads are actually at? I mean, do you think it's just coincidence? I, I don't know. I think there's probably a handful of things uh, that play into it. But, you know, crypto Twitter is very big and very, um, you know, central to a lot of the crypto ethos. And so I think that, you know, without that sort of critical mass on Mastodon, it's just not as appealing to the to the folks who are on crypto Twitter. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, despite, you know, the sort of claims that Twitter is, you know, one of those centralized big tech bad boys that, you know, we need to move away from, there actually isn't much movement, I think, happening among the Web3 folks. You know, they every once in a while, someone will spin up a new decentralized social network. And usually it just sort of gets inundated with crypto spam and everyone moves on. Um, but when something like Mastodon comes up, I guess there's no blockchain to really push people in that direction. There's no token. You can't go to the moon on Mastodon. So I think it's just not, you know, in that up their alley. Now, I wonder how much it has to do also with uh, bots uh, being available already pre-written frameworks uh, to, 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 to sway people. The investment on Twitter and Telegram, for example, if it would be easily ported to Mastodon, if it would, if it would be, I don't know, more resilient as a network Mastodon from, from these attacks. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think that, you know, the ability to just defederate from, you know, a crypto spam network would be fairly useful. Uh, I wish I could do it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, your, uh, your response, your, uh, uh, yeah, when you post on Twitter, the responses you get on Twitter are, um, if you can, I, I'm sure for you, they don't feel amazing, uh, though your ability to apparently let them flow over you is um, pretty awe-inspiring at times, but it shouldn't, I don't know, social media shouldn't have to be awe-inspiring. It shouldn't require as much resilience as you seem to have. Um, yeah, I wish it didn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, where do you think, uh, you know, do you have a sort of unified theory of where this went wrong, where these sort of noble aspirations of 
where I think we all agree, right? Noble aspirations of we're trying to make the world different, better, decentralized, more privacy respecting was at least in theory also one of those things that was there. Do you think there's something innate to the technology or is it a culture that sprung up around the technology or do you, I mean, it might be that the answer is there's a bunch of little different things that played together, but what's your theory on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there absolutely are a bunch of little things that played together, but I think primarily the issue is that the crypto ecosystem and blockchain technology is completely inseparable from monetary speculation. And so, you know, when you start out with these lofty goals, I mean, I remember when I first heard about Bitcoin, it was in the in the scenario of um, or in the context of like WikiLeaks. It was like when WikiLeaks was getting de-platformed by Visa and MasterCard. And so people were like, you can use Bitcoin to support these whistleblowers. And I was like, cool, that sounds awesome. Uh, and that was, you know, sort of the ideological side of things where it was like censorship resistance, you know, supporting people who are getting, uh, you know, cut off from payment networks, uh, you know, rescue people who are under oppressive regimes, that type of thing. You know, it was a far cry from what it is today, which is, you know, go to the moon, become a millionaire overnight, uh, scam people maybe. Um, but I think that the speculative side of things really just attracts those folks very, very much. And so it's, you know, regardless of who the originator of the ideas are, or even who, you know, might still be central to the movement, you end up with this sort of enormous mass of people who have very different goals. Um, and so, you know, the number, I think, of true believers who are strongly ideologically driven and not driven by the money is is quite small in the crypto ecosystem. And so it sort of follows the critical mass and, and you end up with something that despite original intentions or or ideological intentions, you know, is is being used for speculation and fraud and scams and things like that. Right. Well, so and that's actually, I think, a great transition point. I, I want to talk a little bit about what Steph has been up to, because I think, you know, we've now had, uh, how long has Web3 been going, is going just great, like two years? <laughs> Two, three years? Well, Web3 has been going great since its inception. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the website, Web3 is going just great, has been around since December of 2021. So Okay, so not even so not even two years yet. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but there's a track record now, right? We have seen enough that we can draw some conclusions, at, you know. And so here in the early days of, uh, uh, of, of well... I, don't, I mean, Steph, tell me, it's not really the early days, right, in some sense, but it, in other sense, it very much feels like this early days of, of machine learning and AI and how that's interacting. You know, it's sort of come out of the laboratories, I guess, in some sense. And I think that's why you thought it was a good time for OSI to get involved. So tell us a little bit for the listeners who are not familiar, what has Open Source Initiative been doing in this space and, and what kinds of things have you learned? Yeah, so I, I started at the Open Source Initiative a little bit, um, maybe, was it 2020, 2021? Um, uh, at the end of 2021. And I, that, that Copilot was just launched. And, um, and I, I saw that as a very, very dramatic shift in, um, in, in, uh, in a space of technology where for the first time, in, in a, in a, for the first time, in a very clear way, the, the what was a clear separation between data and software started to blend a little bit. Those boundaries of, of what is my uh, my document that I've written with a piece of open source software, for example, is 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 a separate. It's very clear. It's very clear what you have. You know what the rights that you receive when you're using LibreOffice to write something. And what rights you have as a creator when you have written something out of your own mind, right? But when when you start doing the same sort of um, elaboration with uh, a machine learning system, you you don't have a clear understanding. There is no clear understanding about what is the source code of the the plugin that will let you um, add a piece of content to automatically. You know, from a from a text prompt you write you know i want a, i want a picture of a rubber duck uh, uh, floating in the ocean in the middle of big waves right you can have now there is software that can create that for you but what's the source code of that software we don't really know what's the source code for that 
Um, because it requires that kind of intelligent, uh, automatic machine learning system requires data uh, as input uh, and, and requires software elaboration. There is more complexity. So I wanted to understand what that complexity was. And for the OSI, in order to be able to try to defend the freedoms that the open source definition grants to software users and users in the digital space um, and in, in general, so we could replicate the explosive ecosystem that, that has emerged from the open source definition 25 years ago. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that makes a lot of, I mean, I think though this does hark back to what, what Molly was saying of, wow, we had a lot of these hopeful ambitions and visions and uh, is it going to play out? So you did uh, a series of podcasts and the OSI has now released a sort of overview document of some of the implications here. You ended up focusing a lot on uh, data in that. Um, I mean, as you were saying, right, the lines between data and software are starting to blur a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, what were your big takeaways? The big takeaway is that, yeah, so these machine learning, they require a huge amount of data. Uh, the software around it is very, very accessible and and um, and uh, available because it's it's open source like the all the training systems the algorithms and most of the uh, machinery that requires creating a, a a model are are open source and available but the data is what really uh, is is preventing uh, debian for example from from a from distributing a, a complete and corresponding source code, what we, we, we would call a complete and corresponding source code for, for something that automatically tags images or, or expands images. That is the, the, that is crucial because, and it's even, uh, it's also quite complicated to, to obtain. Like the, we're talking about, um, massive amounts of gigabytes of text data in order to train a large a large language model uh, which means that the wikipedia only is uh, what 5 gigabyte <laughs> 10 uh, we, yeah if you if you eliminate the pictures it's like 7 or 8 i think right, it, it, it's tiny so the, we we need a lot more data and that starts to clash with the interest with many other rights that we as society have like the the privacy for example like if you want to train a model to recognize cancer in X-rays or or CAT scans, uh, you need to you need to have access to medical records. Hmm. So that becomes immediately complicated. Then uh, you know if you want to have big uh, pictures of of people, right? It starts to get into privacy laws. Like I don't want to be necessarily. Uh, contributing to to a database that can identify me as I walk into a store or on the streets or pass a border, um, and, you know th those uh, rights. And then there is the rights of creators, right? As a, a poet or or a journalist or a designer, graphic designer, uh, movie. Uh, I, I contribute to the comments, uh, but I don't necessarily want to contribute to training a machine that can eventually reduce my availability of gaining, um, getting revenue from my, <laughs> from my work. Um, so the, the, all these rights, they, they, they clash, right? And, and uh, we, uh, in order to get open source uh, or really accessible frictionless access to large language models or large models in general, we need to find the balance between these rights. That that was one of the biggest takeaway for me. Hmm. Yeah, that's and that's not something that historically open source has had to do much of that kind of balancing stuff. I, you know, Molly, are there questions you think we should be asking uh, as we, in order to be, I don't know, the right level of, well, you, I mean, you said, I thought you said it well at the, a couple minutes ago, you said, look, just because you're a critic doesn't mean you're necessarily a pessimist, right? You might, you can, you can be critical, you can ask hard questions while still, you know, wanting the technology to succeed. Are there things that you think we should be asking uh, of machine learning or that you're curious, you know, what, what would you like to, to know more about? 
<laughs> yeah, I think there are, I mean, the list of questions kind of is endless when it comes to machine learning and, and the various AI initiatives that people have been working with. Um, I think the ethical questions around it are pretty critical, you know, when it comes to the rights of people who are creating the data that is training these models. Also, some of the sort of ghost labor that goes into it, you know, as far as, um, you know, employing people who are actually, you know, providing feedback to these models and, and you know, training them a little bit more manually than most people tend to think of when they think of, you know, this big chat GPT monolith. Um, and then right. I think it's also just, that it's not just software, right? It is right. Yeah, exactly. In, it's embedded right. in a lot of, of things, right? Exactly. Um, and then, you know, I think also just the ethics of, you know, what people will do with the software is really critical as well. Um, I think sometimes the software industry and, and the technologists who work within it are sometimes a little too willing to write software and then release it and then say, okay, that is, you know, wash their hands of it basically. And whatever happens with it happens um, without too much thought into, you know, how do I, what, you know, what are the implications of this technology that I am releasing upon the world and how will it be used? You know, and when it comes to AI, where, where there are concerns around, you know, is this going to affect people's jobs or their livelihoods? You know, will it make people's lives better in the aggregate? Is it going to be used to train models that will, like you said, you know, recognize you at the border or, you know, predict your likelihood of committing a crime or, or whatever it might be? You know, those things really need to be deeply considered, I think. Yeah, I mean, Steph, it, it strikes me that one of the, uh, you, you, um, the, one of the challenges here is that to me, open source is like fundamentally, we assume by default, I think for good reasons, that releasing our software to everybody for Molly, as you were saying, use however you want. Um, we sort of have assumed with traditional open source software that that nets out very positive, right? Yeah. And I think maybe one of the things that Molly is getting at, and there's a whole bouquet of, uh, of, of questions there, but um, you know, one of those things is very much, does that same assumption hold true necessarily in machine learning? It certainly seems like a lot of machine learning practitioners are actually very unsure. Very concerned. Yeah, they seem to be very concerned. It, it's one of the concerns that, uh, that really struck me uh, when, when I started talking to them. I didn't see any of the same reactions or the same frightened reactions uh, from from free software and open source developers. Since the early days, we knew they they knew the software developers from the early days that some of their algorithms, some of their code was ending up into missiles. Too, uh, but those same missiles can be ballistic missiles with nuclear head heads, or they they can also uh, ship people to the moon and and drive explore space exploration. So the net was clear at the time for them and 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 that's why the freedom to use is such a fundamental uh, uh, fundamental freedom in um, in in the definition of open source and free software yeah i i don't have the same i'm not convinced it's the same thing with ai like the 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 community of practitioners they they're just concerned and they they put that the the limitations of use is uh up there into into their fundamental beliefs. Uh, so it's something to be reckoned with. Yeah. If I could add to that too, I think that, you know, there was some, I think we have been seeing shifts in the beliefs around people who write open source software, you know, before the most recent boom, I guess, in AI and, you know, with ChatGPT and things like that, that have been released recently. Um, you know, I remember a couple of years ago reading people who were really questioning open sourcing tools that were being used by ICE, for example, that, you know, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Um, and people were starting to think about, you know, are there other licenses or, you know, um, codes of conduct even that you could sort of adopt as a software engineer to ensure that the software that you were writing, even if it was just a very simple, you know, Python library to do arithmetic or whatever it might be, you know, might not contribute to things that you were morally and ethically opposed to. So I've seen, you know, there's the ethical source movement, there are these sort of 
Hippocratic oaths, but for software engineers types of things that I've been seeing, uh, which I think predate the more recent, you know, OpenAI, uh, ChatGPT things, but are, are very much in that same vein, I think, where, you know, it's things are shifting a lot and people are realizing where their software is being used. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those those have always existed. Though. The, the, the the those concerns there there's always been people. But as uh, Lewis said, generally as a movement, that those were put aside because the net positive of this frictionless approach is so is so much more valuable and more visible that you can uh, think about limiting usage downstreams with other. With other um, elements rather than rather than licenses, not mm-hmm. touching the the legal aspect, but it's more about uh, I refuse to work for those companies. Like so, my contract work is not tied. Um, it's it, it's been a long, com- you know, long conversation, uh, long long debate. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think Molly, you are right. I mean, both of you. There's there's certainly been. Uh, you know, some of these kinds of things have been floating around for a very, very long time. Uh, famously, the Do No Evil uh, mm-hmm. license on some JavaScript stuff. But Molly, you're right. I think there was an uptick in part related to like the, the U.S. political environment, right? A lot of people started thinking a little more critically about like, wait, what? <laughs> what is it that I'm doing? How is my stuff being used? Uh, that... You know, my observation is like a, somebody at Thylift, at we see a fair bit of data about what licenses are actually in use in the wild. And there wasn't much of that happening in the wild, right? I mean, there were some conversations, I think often very good conversations, people asking themselves that. But it, the actual uptake was uh, was not super, was not, not a lot. Uh, and in the AI space, it seems to have, uh, gotten a lot more traction, I think, for obvious reasons, right? The impact there is, um, you know, the impact is at least potentially very different for a lot of the reasons you were both citing, right? I, I think that there's there's also something else happening that it's very uh, rapid, the very rapid, very fast response from policymakers that, uh, from on in U.S. and, and Europe, like the at least in the U.S. and Europe, which are the, the, the spaces that I monitor more the most. The the fact that the large cor- these are large corporations that are deploying these models. And and the academy academia is kind of uh, concerned about how fast the commercially available <laughs> the, these models are becoming commercially available. And and similarly the so the, the reaction from politicians like in the EU there is this AI act that is being discussed. The United States just this week published the, the FTC published recommendations and guidelines for AI in commercial space. And I think that that's what's happening for uh, clearly for, for the first time. I don't think that software got this in, so quickly got regulations attention uh, at the time in the 60s and the 50s. Like, it took a while even to apply copyright to, <laughs> to software. Yeah, yeah, it did. I, yeah, the pace at which regulation is coming. I mean, Molly, you've um, Web3 is going just great, has a thriving, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, criminal convictions <laughs> uh, subsection, right? Um, where, it, uh, you know, bad software has traditionally not led to uh, criminal activity. And all of a sudden, in uh, certainly in the uh, crypto space, there's been, I mean, bluntly, like a lot of fraud, right? A lot of theft, a lot of all all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's going to be, um, I mean, I, I don't think, maybe this is naive. I'm actually curious. What, I, I don't see necessarily the overwhelming use of machine learning being crime or fraud. Certainly a lot of like problematic uses, but it doesn't seem not in the same way that crypto has been sort of, I mean, I, think it's fair to say it's somewhat dominated by that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one distinction I would draw is that, you know, much of the convictions that we've been seeing in 
the crypto and, and blockchain world have been to do with the sort of financial engineering that people are pulling off. You know, that it's been actions against unregistered securities or money laundering or, you know, various wire fraud crimes around running Ponzi schemes and things like that, which is, you know, kind of a tale as old as time. And I don't think is necessarily uh, altogether that much empowered by the technology. Obviously, Crypto, you know, very much uh, it provides a conduit for that, but it's not something that you can't do without crypto, I think, is, is the distinction I would draw. Um, the one, I think, more interesting case or conviction, not well, not conviction, but charge that we've been seeing is more around, there's been a software engineer who's currently imprisoned in the Netherlands for writing um, cryptocurrency tumbling software, which basically mm -hmm. allows you to launder your cryptocurrency. Um, and that's sort of, that's the kind of thing that is more around, you know, someone who's actually written software that is ostensibly could be used for very benign purposes around trying to ensure your own privacy and things like that, but is also widely used for criminal money, money laundering and obfuscating, okay. you know, where stolen funds are going and things like that. And, and, you know, the fact that someone is, is facing potential criminal charges for that, I think is really interesting and, and somewhat concerning in some ways, um, uh, and maybe has ties to concerns that we might see around AI and machine learning, you know, if someone were to do something that was, you know, very helpful for committing crime, but also potentially good uh, in terms of what it might enable. Right. I mean, and so for those who have not followed that case and are listening to this, let me paraphrase and, and make sure I got it right, which is that a lot of the crimes that we're seeing in the crypto space are what's being prosecuted is fraud of some sort. But here in this in this case that you're referring to, what they're actually going after is the creation of the software itself, not just right. the use of the software, right? Because it is software that sure looks like its primary purpose in life is money laundering. Uh, and so they're going after this. Um, and that's what, and, and I think you're really right to call that out, that that is a, an interesting shift, right? Because we don't typically see, or at least maybe not since like the DVD cracking cases <laughs> right, uh, yeah. of 20 years ago, we don't tend to see the software itself as being the illegal thing. We tend to focus on the things that people are doing with it, right? And Steph, yeah. I'm sure you have some thoughts. Well, both of you, I'm sure, have some thoughts. Well, I was just going to say, at this point, it's a, it's still a little unclear exactly what they're going after. So it, the it's not super clear if they're saying you've written this software and that was a crime, or if they're saying you wrote this software and also you benefited from the proceeds of a crime or something like that. So it's still kind of in the air, but it's definitely much closer to the realm of you know a prosecution that is related to the software itself than, say, someone who just ran a Ponzi scheme using a blockchain. Right. As a side yeah, note, I think it's fair to say, I mean, I'm an attorney, but I think Molly may know much more about criminal law at this point than I do. Um, so, yeah, we, we followed for the OSI, we followed that case because it, it's really, I, 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 I disagree with your characterization that this, the software itself is necessarily something written for, for money laundering. Um, like it, it's the, I, I think of it the same way that I think of Tor, the, the onion ruler. Uh, the, the same type of software, of course, it's powering a lot of the criminal conversations around the world and and, uh, and and helping terrorists plan their next attacks or what have you. But at the same time, it's also it was developed with the help of the NSA and other three letters uh, spy organizations. And and this this is the kind of software, but probably did not get the support from the NSA. And it, it does the same thing that Tor does. So in some cases, it might be useful. And then some other cases, well, maybe even the majority of the other cases, it's not. But the, the, the very important question is what Molly was saying. We need to understand what's being prosecuted here, because if it's just the act of writing the software, then I think the, we shouldn't be happy about <laughs> We shouldn't be happy about that. Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, to be clear, I'm not sure that I'm happy about it either. There's a lot of, but I think one of the things that's interesting, right, is, uh, and where machine learning is different and may look more 
may in some ways look more like this money laundering software, or as you correctly point out, more like Tor, uh, is that a model, distributing a model may actually have legal implications, right? Because a model may include personally identifiable information, a uh, model may include uh, copyrighted images in a way that we're not used to in open source, right? Uh, that we're not, we sort of take for granted that the software itself cannot be illegal and in machine learning models, that might not be true, right? I mean, we, yeah. we may see that models themselves are actually a source of legal problem, not just what you do with the models, but the model itself, right? Itself, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very complex it's a very complex new new world, and that's why we call it deep dive. We needed to understand what was going on, and we needed to put together the 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 people who were and the organizations that are studying this. They're more advanced, and but they haven't been talking to each other much. That was the that was the intention. It was really a lot of fun, and we're we're gonna do a second edition. Soon cool. announcement. <laughs> do you do you think that will be? Uh... I mean, I don't want to steal your announcement, Thunder, but uh, will that be more machine learning or will it be going into another topic area? No, no, we're still going to be going into machine learning. Uh, there, there's more to be to be discussed. We need to, I think that we are at the stage where we need to start thinking about helping the policymakers to, 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 to intervene in, in a delicate way, I guess. Like, Educating ourselves and educating the public, but also with without kind of public in mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, Molly, I see you nodding along. Is there something, you, especially that mentioned of policymakers? I mean, is this? Yeah. When yeah, are was, you going to do your first congressional testimony? That's what I want. <laughs> I was actually invited to do one not too long ago. Uh, nice. Not to do with <laughs> machine learning, but. Right. Um, yeah, no, I was just nodding emphatically because um, one of the biggest issues uh -huh. I've been observing in the crypto and web three world over the last year and a half or so that I've been focusing on it is that there is an endless supply of uh, industry actors willing to, you know, quote unquote, educate uh, policymakers on a very specific set of issues that are very beneficial to their industry. And it can be very hard to find people who have maybe a little bit less of a financial interest in educating policymakers, which, you know, it kind of stands to reason in the sense that if you don't have someone paying you to do something, then you may not devote as much time to it. But um, it ends up, I think, very much influencing the policy that we see because, you know, you'll talk to a legislator and they've only had the chance to talk to someone who is basically a PR rep for a crypto company. Um so I was just very excited to hear that you were saying you were hoping to focus on sort of the the policymaker and the legal as or the the legislator aspect of it, just because I think that's critical in understanding this stuff and helping people really responsibly legislate. Yeah, well, Steph, I don't know if you want to take a few seconds. Something that a lot of people might not realize is that for the first time, the Open Source Initiative uh, has a policy person. Uh, who's, who's doing two. Who's doing policy work? Uh, <laughs> we actually have two: one in the US and one in Europe. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, uh, Simon Phipps is uh, has been has been active in uh, in UK and and uh, Brussels to uh, monitoring a lot of the standards work uh, because of the the you know standards legislation comes through standards and standards come through legislations uh, and, and therefore and the standards are are always full of uh, um, minefields for open source implementations uh, called uh, patents and, uh, and and so we we've been uh, we've been monitoring the the activities in in standard setting organizations in Europe for quite some time but now with uh, Increased by uh, bulimic, uh, probably approach of, of uh, like regulation coming out of the European Commission from the Digital Markets Act to um, um, Cyber Resilience Act, the digital uh, the reform of copyright, also the implementation of other new other regulation around soft, software essential patents, and there's so much coming out of the European Commission that we is focused now on understanding those and working with our partners in, in Europe to to 
again, uh, propose and, and have an education educational material uh, available for organizations like the Open Forum Europe and others. Um, and in the US, we're doing similar thing because there is, um, uh, although they're coming out with guidelines, uh, the, the US government prefers guidelines rather than regulation and legislations, but still there is work to do on, on uh, the same front uh, from cybersecurity priorities to, to AI and everything in the middle. I mean, I don't want this to be a podcast for lawyers, uh, but I suspect that we will have some lawyers on talking about some of those things at some point in the future, inevitably. I mean, you know, you mentioned patents and we did earlier mention DVD players, but for a major industry, software has been relatively unregulated and that does appear to be changing uh, very quickly. You know, Molly, I, yeah. think, I think maybe you get to take a little bit of credit for that, Molly, uh, for better or for worse, um, because certainly you've made this. So I think, you know, Stefano, I'm, I'm sure that a. Uh, I'm actually curious, I'm, I'm curious for both of you, right? These are I have had conversations with, uh, you know, very intelligent people, who, but who aren't technologists. And they're like, OK, but I why is it mining? What, what is, you know, like, they really want to understand what the mining part of blockchain mining is. And I'm like, it it actually has nothing to do with mining. Like, don't, you know. Um, and similarly, trying to explain, um, you know, often to the same people, actually, like, wait, so, but how does this artificial intelligence stuff work? How does this machine learning stuff work? The... Um, there's going to be a lot of challenges in explaining that, right? And actually, Molly, I mean, I think genuinely part of what makes what you've been doing so great is that you've made a lot of this stuff very accessible. You've brought your Wikipedia and explainer skills uh, to, to bringing this down to earth and, you know, and Steph, you're trying to do the same kind of thing with the, with deep dive. And I'm curious, uh, I don't know, are you optimistic? Do you think policymakers are actually going to understand this stuff well enough to regulate with, as you say, a sort of, reasonable touch or is it are we going to have to do some some period of refining and explaining and there will probably be some toe stubbing along the way yeah okay well I, i'm gonna there will I'm be gonna toe stubbing <laughs> i'm optimistic <laughs> but there will be toe stubbing <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's tough you know in order to be able to regulate something well you have to understand it but you know, if you're a legislator, you don't necessarily have all the time in the world or the the background necessarily to understand some of the pretty complex things that go into the cryptocurrency industry or the, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning side of things. Um, and so they very much rely on, you know, outside experts and consultants and things like that to try to uh, inform their knowledge and, and you know, as uh, that can be both good and bad, I think, depending on where those people are coming from. Um, I think it, to some extent, will be a matter of trial and error. You know, I think we've been seeing that in the crypto world for sure, which is, you know, there have been a lot of attempts at legislation, some of which have been very, I think, misguided, but some of them have had, you know, I think, good ideas in them. Uh, and, you know, I think, I, I hope that, you know, the democratic process can sort of work through that and, and help um, establish something that is broadly beneficial to society. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, especially with, you know, lobbyists and things like that in the mix as well. Right. Yeah. What I think, where I think Web3 and the AI machine learning system really are very similar is the complexity is really beyond imagination. And I, I got this sense that no one, including the top experts, really understand what's happening, especially in the when it goes into the weeds of the crypto finance. Like I'm un, unraveling the the the, the 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 sequence of derivatives that they can uh, assemble and then sell for something, and someone will pay for. It, very similar to what goes into building a large machine, a large language model and trying to justify its output and see what's inside. Like, I don't think that there is the mathematics um, uh, there developed to, to explain what's happening yet. And, and so politicians are now being called to legislate or judges are being called to evaluate these things. It's gonna take forever. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that to some extent. I was just going to say that I also think that to some extent you don't need to have the incredibly deep technical knowledge to be able to get something that's you know pointing in the right direction. So, you know, I I think that that's just sort of the the nature of policy, right? Is that you no. know lawmakers are not simultaneously experts on every single thing that they are tasked with legislating. Uh, but the idea is that they will hopefully get something that's close enough. Yeah. Directionally the right. I mean, I, you know, I think certainly part of what's challenging here is this sort of uh, what's been sometimes called the Californian ideology, this, this sort of like libertarian ish uh, deep skepticism of the competence of government uh, to do just about anything related to tech. And I think we're going to have to get over that to some extent, right? Because if the alternative is going to be no regulation, there's there, uh, as suffice to say, I think a lot of people are not going to have patience for us saying for us as technologists saying, Oh yeah, no regulation at all is the right answer. People are going to say, no, no, there needs to be, I mean, we're going to have some embarrassing, um, this, this, this conversation calls to mind the, the congressperson who was who did the whole like the internet is a series of tubes <laughs> time we they were that was roundly mocked but like yeah i mean at some level it was not wrong not too uh, far off we, yeah <laughs> yeah and, and we're gonna get some of those kinds of like argument by analogy that sometimes the analogies are gonna make us cringe as tech as people who are close to the technology but molly i mean as you say if, if we get it directionally correct and we iterate, which, um, you know, that's iteration in, in law is hard and, and complicated uh, as with any large system. Um, but yeah, I, you know, um, I, I just want to start bringing this to a close. <clears throat> I'd love to ask you both, like, what are you optimistic about right now in this space, right? Like, are there any particular things that make you excited either in like a pragmatic like hey i think it's really going to advance our values or in just a like actually it's sort of silly but this is super cool like what 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 makes you what makes you smile when you think about tech right now uh well for me i would say it is the general shift this is kind of a weird thing to be excited about i guess but the the general shift away from blind optimism around tech and tech companies and the people who lead them uh towards a little bit more of a skeptical and sometimes cynical outlook uh where people are more i think willing to question whether or not you know these large tech companies are working towards the greater good or, you know, maybe towards something else like profit motive. Um, I think that has been, that's been a pretty major shift, I think, over the past, you know, decade or two. Um, you know, when Facebook was really first coming out, people were very much into the whole like, oh, this is going to connect everybody. This is going to break down barriers. People will be able to you know, meet people halfway across the world and, and connect with people. And this will be good, just sort of un unexceptionally good um and then obviously some things happened you know there was cambridge analytica there were civil wars and, and things like that and people started to realize that there can be these externalities of things that on their surface look just great and wonderful uh that we really need to consider and that companies can sometimes act in in ways that are obviously not always societally benef beneficial and so you know i think that sort of broad awakening has been really helpful um and and i am optimistic around the fact that you know there is this sort of societal willingness to question an industry that for a long time was very much viewed with this sort of sparkle that was not maybe always deserved and i say that as someone who's in tech you know <laughs> i love tech i think tech is amazing but i also have just sort of deep concerns around the way that it is sometimes developed Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's actually one of the challenging things. I, I do share actually your like, uh, I mean, I, I share the like, oh, it's nice that we're a little more self-critical right now. Uh, but it is a challenging time to be both like fundamentally somebody who likes tech, right? Who, uh, I mean, uh, you know, you and me both, I mean, all three of us, right? Like our networks, our careers, our f deep friends are based around this stuff. and. Uh, so it feels a little weird to also be like, but hey, 
it's it's not all good. Uh, though I do think Molly, an interesting one, and Steph, this is a good transition to you. The open source initiative, the open source movement, came out of a period of deep skepticism, mm -hmm. right? Of uh, you know where uh, open source was the challenger. And, uh, you know, Microsoft was, I certainly first got involved right around the time of the first uh, of the Microsoft antitrust trial, right? And Microsoft was the bad guy. And there was an acknowledged uh, its control over platforms and channels, which in retrospect, relative to like app stores, feels very quick. <laughs> <corny. laughs> um, you know, but that was something we were deeply worried about and deeply skeptical of. And, and open source was in part the first wave of open source. I don't know if we're now a second or third or it depends on how you want to count, but like that way. numbering them like web three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that essay has definitely been written, not by me, but yeah, I mean, you know, Steph, that history, I mean, both, uh, if you have any thoughts on that history, but also I really want to hear again, like, what are you optimistic about? What's. Um, well, thoughts on the history. We should probably do another, <laughs> another. <laughs> Fair enough. Another episode, but I, I surprisingly I'm I'm optimistic in the same in the on the same the same vein as uh, Molly was saying was talking about. I'm I look at the legislation that is coming up, the 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 increased interest on cybersecurity and and the safety of the uh, the digital systems as they've been deployed, and I I look at that and with optimism, I I started getting involved in in uh, software. Um, first and, and then free software and open source after, not from the engineering software perspective. I, I came from architecture and I remember how deeply surprised I was of how primitive the whole system of setting up a digital software system was. Like the either the, the project management tools, like even for gathering specifications and writing the software and then deploying the system live seemed to me like there was no engineering behind it. <laughs> there was no structure. It was just, oh, let, let's assemble these pieces. You know, we code it. And then if there are bugs, we'll fix them later. All of that attitude needed to change. And I think it's a positive change that is coming now with uh, with the legislature, uh, legislations around the world. And and yeah, sure, we're all scared about the side effects because it's, it's a big change and a big shift. But I think it... It, it's a positive one. We can't continue to have software systems and digital systems that if if they were uh, bridges, we wouldn't cross them. We would absolutely never pass through that. But yeah. we, we need to have more solidity there. Well, I mean, I think that's actually, that's a terrific note to end on. I, I, because I think certainly what I'm hoping to do with this uh, podcast is very much explore how open is in some sense no longer a an outlier right it is part of the infrastructure of everything we do uh and i think that's both that is both challenging and and needs smart uh thoughtful critics and also hopefully hearkening back to some of that you know hopefully molly uh, i hope it does decentralize and and distribute power in ways that are more just and more empowering and more democratic. We'll see. That's the goal of this conversation. Thank you both so much for coming on uh, in this uh, first edition of the new podcast. And I uh, look forward to seeing what both of you continue to do in uh, your deep dives and in Web3 is going just great. So thank you both very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.